Good afternoon. Welcome to Reunions. Just want to get started here. If you'll turn off your cell phone ringers and um, on behalf of Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement and the, Associ the Alumni Association, I would like to thank Elizabeth Barron for volunteering to speak for us today. She received her PhD from Yale and has held teaching positions at Wesley College and Temple University. She's a specialist in the Civil War era and 19th century South. Barron is the author of several books and Southern Lady Yankee Spy won three book awards and was named one of the five best books on the Civil War away from the battlefield in the Wall Street Journal. Her book, Appomattox, won numerous accolades and was named one of Civil War Monitor's best books of 2014 and one of National Public Radio's six Civil War books to read now. Barron, Barron's public presentations include book talks at the Lincoln Bicentennial in Springfield and at Gettysburg Civil War Institute and on C-SPAN's Book TV. Please welcome Elizabeth Barron. Can everyone hear me? We good on volume? All right. So thank you all very much for coming out on this beautiful early summer afternoon to hear about the Civil War. I have on tap for you today a story that's a regional history story, but also one of the most important historic events in world history, that is to say, Robert E. Lee's surrender to U.S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, April 9, 1865. Many of you will know, but perhaps not everyone, that Appomattox is just about an hour and 15 minutes due south from here and is a beautiful place. I recommend uh, that you visit it if that's not something you've done uh, already. So I will um, bring out some of the both na national and regional dimensions of this story for you today. So let's set the stage. Lee's surrender to Grant, April 9, 1865, is a familiar tableau for most Americans. The two men met in the parlor of Wilmer McLean in the modest central Virginia hamlet of Appomattox Courthouse. Lee wore a fine dress uniform and embodied the proud gentility of the South's planter elite. Grant, there dressed casually in a mud-spattered uniform, represented the hard-scrabble farmers and wage earners he had molded into a formidable fighting machine. The two men awkwardly exchanged some pleasantries about their service in the Mexican War, and then they agreed to the surrender terms that effectively ended the Civil War. In essence, Grant's terms set free the conquered soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia on their honor, the promise that they would never again take up arms against the United States. Grant's magnanimity in this hour, Lee's stoic resignation in defeat, not only reunited the North and South, but prepared the way for America's emergence as a world power. This is an edifying story when told this way. The story of Appomattox is a gentleman's agreement between Lee and Grant, two men who at this crucial moment rise above their hatreds for the good of the country they both love. This sort of mythical Appomattox cast the surrender as a moment of healing that transcended politics. But today I'm going to tell you an altogether different Appomattox story and suggest that what happened on April 9, 1865 is even more 
significant and fascinating than we have realized. I'll suggest that the surrender was an inherently political moment fraught with tension and uncertainty, and that it would set the terms of an unfolding debate about what the war meant. Lee and Grant were both consummate leaders. They knew well how high the stakes were, and that's why each man at Appomattox moved to stake out a position. Lee sought to turn military defeat into moral victory. In his view, the war, which was brought on by extremism, had cost America dearly, and the peace was, in his view, an opportunity for the country to obliterate the war's grievous effects, as Lee sought, and for the country to regain what it had lost, the civic virtue Lee associated with the promising days of the early republic before the Union's fall from grace. For Lee, the surrender with Grant was a negotiation in which he secured honorable terms for his blameless men, and the peace was contingent on the North's good behavior. The Union victory in Lee's eyes, in other words, was one of might over right. Grant's position was diametrically opposed to Lee's, and I'll elaborate on all this uh, as we move forward. In Grant's view, the Federal Army's triumph flowed from the superior virtue of its cause. In Grant's view, the surrender was in no sense a negotiation. Grant was merciful to Lee. He was, his mercy was designed, Grant believed, not to exonerate the Confederates, but to affect their repentance. Grant believed he could be merciful precisely because he had rendered Lee utterly powerless and his cause discredited and hopeless. For Grant, the Union victory was a victory of right over wrong, and the peace was contingent on the South's good behavior. These competing visions would exert a profound influence over post-war politics, but Grant and Lee didn't craft the surrender in isolation. As this Appomattox drama unfolded, their countrymen and women crowded the scene and invested the surrender with their own agendas and aspirations and dreams. And those dreams included the dream of freedom itself. In the eyes of African-American soldiers in the Union Army and former slaves, more than the Union was vindicated on that April day. For them, Lee's surrender was a freedom day, the moment the promise of emancipation was finally fulfilled. So I'm going to propose for you today that essentially three distinct understandings of the surrender take shape at Appomattox. Lee's emphasis is on restoration, and his nostalgia for the past makes that interpretation utterly incompatible with the victor's interpretations, which emphasize change and progress. I'll suggest, too, that debates over Appomattox reveal not only the depth of bitterness between the victors and vanquished, but also deep divisions within each society, divisions within the North and within the South. So let me begin with the Confederate interpretation with Lee's emphasis on restoration. On April 8, 1865, in the midst of his desperate retreat out of the trenches of P Petersburg and Richmond and uh, westward uh, uh, across the Virginia countryside, Lee pens a letter to Grant. This is a famous correspondence the men had in the final days here of the war, Lee pens a letter to Grant in response to Grant's own letter suggesting that the Confederate cause was hopeless and the time had come to capitulate. Lee wrote Grant, quote, to be frank, I do not think the emergency has arisen to call for a surrender of this army, but as the restoration of peace should be the sole object of all, I desire to know whether your proposals would lead to that end. I cannot therefore meet you with the view to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia. 
but as far as your proposal may tend to the restoration of peace, I should be pleased to meet you. In using this word restoration twice, Lee was beginning to elaborate his vision of an honorable defeat. So what did he mean by restoration? Restoration was a common word in political lingo at the time. It was a favorite theme of the Northern Peace Democrats, the critics of Lincoln's in the North, who deplored the Lincoln administration's conduct of the war. They particularly deplored the emancipation of slaves, and they sought to return the Union to the way it was. That was their campaign slogan as they tried to unseat Lincoln. Lee, like many Confederates, had hoped that battlefield victories, Confederate battlefield victories, would swell a chorus of dissent in the North and bring the North to the negotiating table that these peace Democrats would throw Lincoln out of office and uh, a party more favorable to Southern aspirations would come into office. So there's that context. But Lee's own understanding of restoration was distinct from that of Northern Democrats. It was rooted in Lee's family culture and that of his native Virginia. Like many other Virginians of his generation and elite bloodline, Lee was steeped in nostalgia for the days of the early republic, the days when the other states almost took it for granted that Virginia would be their leader, and when Virginians felt proprietary pride in the Union, Virginia the mother of all states, as uh, people like to say, the home to so many founders, and so on. For Lee, an honorable peace would restore to the South the prosperity and influence he associated with the halcyon days of an imagined past. He was nostalgic, again, not for 1850, but sort of for 1820, if you will, before the nation had drifted away from the principles of the Virginia founders, before, as he saw it, abolitionists had imbued African Americans with false hopes of freedom and equality. Lee did not seek at this moment the restoration of slavery. He knew that wasn't possible, but he certainly sought the preservation of the South's racial hierarchy. From 1865 on, restoration would be Lee's political key word. We see that word and variants of it crop up again and again and again in his post-war correspondence. For example, six months after the surrender, Lee wrote his friend Matthew Fontaine Morey the following lament, about what had been at what might again be. He wrote, quote, as long as virtue was, the, was dominant in the republic, so long was the happiness of the people secure. May an ever merciful God save us from destruction and restore us to the bright hopes and prospects of the past. This was a fundamentally backward looking view of the peace. Lee's hopes for restoration were premised not only on nostalgia, but also on the case that his army, the Army of Northern Virginia, was blameless. And he elaborated that case on April 10 in his famous farewell address. This was drafted under his guidance by his aide-de-camp, Charles Marshall. Lee's farewell address began, quote, after four years of arduous service, marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude, the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. Confederate troops had remained steadfast to the last, Lee continued, and could draw satisfaction, even in this bitter hour, from the consciousness of duty faithfully performed. Lee's farewell address immediately took an iconic, on an iconic status among his troops. It had profound emotional resonance for them. Starving and as exhausted as they were, the Yankee army did seem endless and encompassing, overwhelming numbers and resources. But Lee's farewell address had layers of meaning 
and deep, tangled roots. For white Southerners, the reference to overwhelming numbers and resources was a sort of code. In the context of pro-slavery ideology and of the Confederate creed, numbers conjured up a northern army of mercenaries and hirelings who had been seduced or coerced into service and had no real moral stake in the fight. That's the Confederate view of the Yankee army. Resources conjured up images of northern factories and cities in which an exploited underclass churned out the material of war at the behest of rapacious capitalists. This is the secessionist view of the industrializing north. Secessionists had seen the burgeoning wealth and population of the north as an indictment of northern society, of its social instability, its obsession with the bottom line as they saw it. The reference in Lee's farewell address to the unsurpassed courage and fortitude of Confederate troops was part and parcel of that same indictment of the North. Defenders of the Southern way of life had made a staple of the claim for decades at this point that Southern men accustomed to mastery and rural ways were made of sterner stuff than Northern clerks and factory workers, wage slaves as they were called uh, in the secessionist critique. Lee was a very sophisticated man. He was well aware of this ideological freight. He was aware of what he was doing in referring to the unsurpassed courage and fortitude of the Confederate troops. He was implying that the Union troops had not been the equals of the Confederate ones and the essential attributes of manhood. And in so saying, Lee was making a political statement in this farewell address. By denying the legitimacy of the North's military victory, Confederates could deny the North the right to impose its political will on the South after the war. At Appomattox, Lee moved on a second front to cast the surrender terms in the best possible light, hoping their paroles could confer on his men a measure of immunity from reprisals at the hands of the victorious Federals. Lee requested in a second meeting he had with Grant uh, after the famous McLean House meeting, men met a second time, uh, April 10, on horseback. And at that meeting, Lee requested of Grant that each individual Confederate be issued a printed certificate signed by a Union officer as proof that the soldier came under the April 9 Appomattox settlement, a so-called parole pass or certificate. Grant assented to Lee's request uh, and printing presses were set up at Appomattox Courthouse, which began churning out these parole passes. You can still buy some on eBay, but they're also ones uh, uh, that survive in libraries and archives and, and, and uh, in family collections, as you can imagine. In keeping with the language of the surrender terms, each of these parole certificates vouched that if a surrendered Confederate soldier observed the laws in force where he resided, he was to, quote, remain undisturbed, unquote. And those two words will end up carrying a lot of political meaning, as we'll see. Now, Union men imagined that the certificates would remind the Confederates of the obligations attendant upon their status as paroled prisoners of war, which they technically were. But the Confederates, as we'll see, will emphasize the remain undisturbed clause. They will interpret that as a promise that honorable men would not be treated dishonorably by the Yankees. In the Confederate inter interpretation, in other words, the surrender terms imposed conditions on the North. And we see this in an April 29, 1865 interview that Lee does just a few weeks now after Appomattox. He sits down with a Northern reporter from the New York Herald, a sort of centrist uh, Northern paper. 
And in this interview with the Northern Reporter, Lee warns that if, quote, arbitrary or vindictive or revengeful policies were adopted by the Republican administration, Southerners would consider the surrender terms breached and would renew the fight. Ten months later, Lee will testify before a congressional committee investigating waves of anti-black violence in the South in the early days of Reconstruction. And in this interview with Congress, Lee will defend the lenient policies of President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, who had pardoned leading rebels by uh, the thousands, uh, and, and this permitted ex-Confederates to come back to power in the early days of Reconstruction. And Lee, in this interview with Congress, would again caution that the North should remain restrained in its approach to reunion, for that was the best way, Lee told Northern congressmen, for Northerners to regain the good opinion of the South. The main point here is this. Lee has a reputation in the modern day for having counseled resignation to defeat, accept the situation, was his message to Southerners, or so we're told. But for Confederates in the immediate post-war period, big goal of my book to say, what did this all feel like right when it was all raw and, and, and new? For Confederates in the immediate post-war period, Lee was not a symbol of submission. He was a symbol of measured defiance. Indeed, Confederate civilians imagined the very surrender scene as an enactment of Lee's superiority to Grant a revealing, if fanciful, report on the conference at the McLean House circulated through Confederate newspapers in late April of 1865. And in this account, Lee offers Grant his sword, and Grant refuses to take it. And according to this newspaper account, again, which made its rounds through Confederate papers, particularly in places that hadn't um, uh, weren't under federal control yet. In this Confederate account, Grant turns to Lee and says, quote, General Lee, keep that sword. You have won it by your gallantry. You have not been whipped but overpowered, and I cannot receive it as a token of surrender from so brave a man. Now, of course, U.S. Grant never said any such thing to Robert E. Lee. But the report seemed credible to Confederates because it affirmed the might overwrite interpretation. Here's Grant still uh, deferring to Lee, his superior. Confederate diarist Emma Holmes wrote of the surrender scene that Union officers cheered for Lee as he left the McLean house and that the rank-and-file Yankees dared not utter a single insulting word to the defeated rebels. Why were the Yankees so reticent and even submissive at their moment of triumph? Holmes explained, she wrote in her diary, they feared the lion even in chains. They feared the lion, even in chains. Lee, the lion. In the year after the war, Confederates would not only again and again and again invoke the overwhelming numbers and resources interpretation of their defeat, they would also invoke the Appomattox terms, particularly the remain undisturbed clause. And they would invoke those terms as a shield against social change and a weapon in a looming battle over black civil rights. Republican efforts to give the freed people a measure of equality and opportunity and protection were met by Confederate protests that such a radical agenda was a betrayal of the Appomattox terms. That the prospect of black citizenship, as one Virginia newspaper put it, quote, molests and disturbs us. In short, Confederates believed Lee had drawn a line in the sand at Appomattox, 
The North Carolina poet Mary Bayard Clark put it most succinctly. Urging Southerners to model their behavior on that of Lee, she wrote in the summer of 1866 that Lee had, quote, not stooped his grandly proud head one hair's breadth since he surrendered to Grant. Confederates would observe their parole terms, she wrote, but more than this, an honorable enemy should not desire. It is idle to attempt to force them to say and feel they were wrong, for they were right. This is the Confederate interpretation. Now we'll pivot to the Union interpretation, and it won't surprise you to know that from the start, the Confederate interpretation was resoundingly rejected by U.S. Grant and by his inner circle and by the vast majority of Union soldiers and civilians. We're still okay on volume, everyone? All right. In Grant's view, it was precisely an admission of wrongdoing and a change of heart that was owed him from his defeated foes. Lee's rhetoric of restoration, turning back the clock, held no charm for the Union general. Indeed, Grant, as he uh, expressed his support in 1864 for Lincoln's reelection, had publicly and explicitly rejected this equation of peace with restoration. He associated this restoration language with defeatism, the defeatism of the Democrats in the North who uh, were so opposed to Lincoln. And he associated it, too, with the specter, as Grant put it, of the restoration to the South of slaves already freed. That was a, something Grant was just not going to countenance. He didn't want to see the rolling back of the changes the war had wrought, the consolidation of the Republican Party uh, power, the repudiation of states' rights, black emancipation, and the enlistment of African-American troops. No rolling back for Grant. Grant also rejected the notion that he had in any sense negotiated with Robert E. Lee at Appomattox. In Grant's view, he, Grant, had all the cards on April 9, 1865. Grant felt the meaning of the surrender terms to be unmistakable. I never claimed that the parole passes gave these prisoners any political rights whatsoever, he wrote in the spring of 1866. I thought that was a matter entirely with Congress over which I had no control. In other words, the fraught questions raised by the surrender. When would these conquered Confederates be permitted to vote and hold office again, for example? How much of their property, other than uh, slaves, would be restored to them? These questions, as Grant saw it, were to be settled by elected officials and politicians in the civil realm. It wasn't part of his brief to settle those questions, and he didn't intend to do so. Surrender by parole was a military convention Grant's terms rested on military calculations. He felt certain on April 9, 1865, that if he got Lee to surrender, quote, all the rebel armies would surrender and we would thus avoid bushwhacking and a continuation of the war. In Grant's interpretation, Lee uh, was not set free by Grant's terms. The paroled rebels were prisoners of war whose freedom was, again, contingent on their good behavior. Now, the key here, the thing here is that for Grant, the word that encapsulates this interpretation is vindication. Grant felt vindicated on many levels. He was very keenly aware of the fact that over the course of the war, many Northerners, Northerners in the Union Army, Northerners in the government, in the press, had attributed to Lee almost superhuman abilities, as Grant would put it in his own memoirs. Grant resented this, as you can well imagine. Grant felt all along that the rebel chief was mortal, and the surrender vindicated him in that knowledge. Moreover, Grant had been stung by the charge leveled at him by the 
so-called Copperhead or Peace Democrat press in the North, that he, Grant, was a merciless butcher who sent men fruitlessly to their deaths, particularly in the last year of the war. And Grant felt undisguised contempt for, the, as he put it, the stay-at-home traitors, the Copperhead Democrats, who were so critical of the war effort. Indeed, it's, it really seems at times that he hated Copperheads more than Confederates. Now, with Lee's defeat, with Grant's show of leniency, the mantle of butcher is falling from Grant's shoulders. He has beaten Lee, and he's shown mercy at the moment of victory. No butcher he. More than anything, the surrender in Grant's eyes was the triumph of a just cause. Again, right over wrong. That's how Grant sees this. The North's triumph, he believed, vindicated the principle of majority rule for which Union men felt they were fighting. It vindicated the founders' belief in a perpetual Union. It vindicated the capacity of citizen soldiers representing democracy to outfight the conscripts and dupes of an autocratic society. There's the Yankee view of the rebel army, dupes of slaveholding aristocrats. The downfall of the Confederacy also unburdened the South and the nation of slavery, an institution abhorrent to all civilized people not brought up under it, as Grant put it. Now the way was open as he sought for the Union's ethos of progress, moral progress, material progress, to enter the South, the mass of white Southerners, most of whom didn't own slaves, could be disenthralled from their subservience to the slaveholding class. It's a very common Union view of the dynamics of Southern society. The masses needed to be disenthralled from their aristocratic overlords. Grant did not believe Lee and his men to be blameless. Instead, Grant believed, and this is how he put it, that for every sin, there must be a chance at atonement. And in Grant's view, his offer of mercy to the de de defeated Confederates was that chance to atone. His generosity was the generosity of a conqueror whose victory was total. That's how he saw things. Now, Grant's view of the surrender as a triumph of right over wrong proved just as resonant and enduring among Northerners as Lee's view did among white Southerners. Surprisingly, this is something we, we don't often appreciate, Many northern troops felt that they and Grant had been the underdogs in this contest with Lee, facing the fabled Robert E. Lee, the fabled Army of Northern Virginia, which had so often bested Union armies in the Eastern Theater. The humble Grant had finally um, brought Lee to heel. Union soldiers attributed their victory to their own superhuman effort, to their own virtue and courage, not to brute force or overwhelming numbers or resources. The Union soldiers also invoked divine providence. There seemed to be something providential in the setting and timing of the surrender. A strange providence was surely at work, an army chaplain in the Union's Fifth Corps surmised, in the fact that the surrender terms were signed in the home of a man, Wilmer McLean, and some of you will know this story. It's one of those Civil War stories so good you couldn't possibly make it up. Wilmer McLean, who owned the house, uh, where the Appomattox surrender took place, had also owned a house right on the battleground of First Manassas, where the first battle of the war was fought, a Confederate victory. How wondrous the divine retribution, as the, this uh, chaplain put it. Now the tables were turned. Divine favor was also to be found in the date of the surrender on Palm Sunday. So Union soldiers thought this was uh, providence at work. It was a universal expression among Union soldiers. This chaplain wrote that the surrender was a blessed Sabbath's work. 
Where's that coming from? Yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. Let's yeah, see if we can get turned off, great. Um, uh, now, among those Northerners who embraced Grant's policy of magnanimity, and this is interesting and, and, and maybe a little surprising, among those who embraced Grant's policy of magnanimity were abolitionists and radical Republicans, those uh, folks in the North who most wanted to see the South change. It was charged at the time by Confederates and by Copperhead Democrats that radicals were intent on vengeance against the defeated South, but the evidence suggests otherwise. In the eyes of abolitionists such as the influential editor Horace Greeley, magnanimity was a means to achieve a sacred purpose, namely to secure the ascent of the South to emancipation. Magnanimity is a way to, again, change hearts and minds, to uh, prepare the South to accept emancipation. Indeed, Northerners, including and especially many abolitionists, saw Grant's magnanimity as an emblem of their moral authority and their moral superiority, the moral superiority of Northern society. The magnanimity proved, as Greeley wrote, that a civilization based on free labor is of a higher and more humane type than one based on slavery. Greeley also wrote to a friend, and I think this is very revealing, he wrote, quote, I want as many rebels as possible to live to see the South rejuvenated and transformed by the influence of free labor. What fitter fate in his mind was there for the likes of Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee than to have to bear witness to an unfolding social revolution, to see the change that they had fought to keep at bay? In essence, here's a key point. In essence, Northerners who embraced Grant's terms and Grant's interpretation said to the South, we don't want to inflict further punishments. The war was your punishment. We want you to change. And Confederates responded that the demand for change was a form of punishment, that any demand for change was inherently punitive. This contest over the surrender's meaning, interestingly, did not simply pit the South against the North or even the Confederacy against the Union. It pitted those who favored a thorough transformation of the South against those who rejected such a transformation, and their Northerners and Southerners in both camps. Here's the theme of divisions within each society. Again, the Peace Democrats of the North, those critics of Lincoln, were loath for the hated Republican Party, Lincoln's party, loath for the Republican Party to treat the surrender as a vindication and a mandate. And so they spun it. They declared that the Confederate interpretation of Appomattox was the right one. Democrats rallied behind the idea that overwhelming numbers and resources, not the skill of Lincoln and his administration, not the skill of Grant, is what brought Southerners to heel. Confederacy subdued by overwhelming numbers in the peace Democrat interpretation. The South, too, was divided. White Southern Unionists, a sort of beleaguered minority that had opposed the Confederacy during the war, rallied behind Grant's interpretation and reveled in the fact that Grant had brought uh, Lee to heel. Now, in the year after the surrender, the dominant Union interpretation came to incorporate an argument about the lost promise of Appomattox, the betrayal of Grant's magnanimous terms. And for Grant and his followers, the arch-betrayer was Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor after Lincoln's assassination. Johnson, it seemed to Grant and to many of those who tried to affect Johnson's impeachment, Johnson had capitulated to Lee's idea that peace should bring the restoration of power to elite Southerners. 
again, pardoning uh, Southern this, uh, elite leaders by the thousands, Johnson had. Confronted with what he called the foolhardiness of the far too lenient Johnson, and as he put it, the blindness of the Southern people to their own interest, Grant had adapted. He had worked up to the point where he favored voting rights for African-American men. Grant had not been in favor of this before the war, or even right at the end of the war. But he came to favor voting rights as the only way, as he put it, to dispel the ex-Confederates' pretension that they would be able to control the nation again and were entitled to do so. And here's the, the thing I, in my research that most surprised me uh, and seemed most uh, to sort of fly in the face of this gentleman's agreement view of the surrender. Grant himself gives an interview, very revealing interview with the press after the surrender, about a year after the surrender. He talks to a northern reporter, and in this interview, Grant reveals that he is deeply disappointed by Lee's refusal to give the victors their due. Lee is taken to task by Grant in this interview. Grant says that Lee was, quote, behaving badly, unquote. Setting an example, here I'm quoting Grant's words, setting an example of forced acquiescence so grudging and pernicious in its effects as to be hardly realized. Lee behaving badly, forced acquiescence grudging and pernicious in its effects. This is, you know, no meeting of the minds and kissing and making up here. Grant resented Lee for denigrating the Union victory as a show of force rather than the triumph of the righteous cause. He resented Lee for encouraging Confederates to resist change in the name of restoration. Grant learned, in other words, that he would need to enter the political arena to finish the work he began on April 9, 1865. And of course, Grant will enter that arena uh, and uh, replace Andrew Johnson as president in 1868. Now, I want to turn to my third interpretation. This is the most surprising one because of the least well uh, known to us all, and that is an interpretation with its focus on liberation. No Americans hoped more keenly or asserted more fervently that the surrender marked a new era than African Americans. For them, the Union victory vindicated the cause of black freedom and racial justice. At Appomattox, African Americans were both liberators and the liberated. In this last clash of Grant and Lee at the end of that desperate chase across the central Virginia countryside from Petersburg to Appomattox, Lee's army had tried on the morning of April 9 at Appomattox Courthouse to break free of a federal trap. Lee's hope was that he was going to be able to cut south into North Carolina, meet up with Joe Johnston's army, and live to fight another day. But his escape route out of Appomattox Courthouse is blocked by Union troops, including black soldiers in blue, African-American troops in the Union army six regiments of the so-called USCT, United States Colored Troops, with one other waiting in the wings. When they heard confirmation of Lee's capitulation, the black troops' exaltation knew no bounds. They shouted, danced, and sang, and embraced each other with exuberant joy, a white Union private observed. Now, these black regiments at Appomattox were, in a sense, a microcosm of black life in America at this time. They included ex-slaves. Most of the 200,000 African-American men in the Union Army had been slaves. They were Southerners who had been slaves and fled to Union lines. Um, they included also free blacks. Uh, they were trained in places like K Kentucky's Camp Nelson, Philadelphia's Camp William Penn, the staging grounds for the USCT. 
in the ranks of these black regiments at Appomattox, lucky for me, was the, a man who would go on to become the most renowned African-American historian of the late 19th century, a man named George Washington Williams. He's in the ranks as a teenager, but in his post-war life, he'll become the most decorated uh, historian of, uh, of uh, African-American history in this period, and he'll write accounts, which I was able to use, of all he saw uh, at this moment. In the ranks there at Appomattox is a Baptist editor named William J. Simmons, who would become the journalistic mentor to none other than the famous anti-lynching crusader Ida B. Wells. In the ranks were countless other men whose stories were just beginning to uncover, men such as William H. Costley, his mother, Nance, had been freed in an 1841 Illinois court case argued by a young upcoming lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. In the ranks was a man named George Edmondson, born in Lexington, Virginia, a descendant of the Hemings family of Monticello. And I've just learned recently that there were in the ranks, too, a handful of men born here in Albemarle County. And as a little bit of an aside, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about this during the Q&A, I'll mention that I'm the associate director of a new Civil War Center here at UVA, the now Civil War Center. Gary Gallagher, my uh, dear friend, um, is the director. And the now Center has a number of interesting ongoing projects. And one of them is to try to uncover the stories of men from this region, uh, UVA students, um, uh, and, and uh, uh, locals who were not UVA students who might have fought for the Union Army, something we don't know much about. So in the course of our research, we found about a dozen uh, white UVA-affiliated men who fought for the Union Army and expect to find more. But in the course of our research, we discovered that there were, by looking at roles of, uh, of the USCT regiments, that there were 240 African-American men born in Albemarle County who fought in the Union Army. And it's an interesting story because the Union Army didn't have a presence here until the very end of the war. They didn't enlist here in Albemarle County. They enlisted all over the country. They represent, in, uh, uh, in a sense, the sort of diaspora of African Americans in uh, 19th century um, uh, America. They were men who had um, fled their uh, masters to get to Union lines. They were men who um, who were sold away from Albemarle County and ended up in far-flung places, Missouri, Louisiana, and so on, and joined regiments uh, when the Union Army uh, uh, entered those regions. They were men who had migrated with their masters and forced migrations. Some of them were free men before the war who had moved uh, uh, out of Albemarle County. So, again, 240 men in 70-some regiments. The stories of these men, again, are, are sort of endlessly fascinating. I'll give you just a couple examples of an especially improbable journeys. And I'm, I'm, I'll focus on the word journeys here for the simple reason that for these men, service in the Union Army would be very dangerous, but just getting to Union lines was often very, very dangerous. Uh, and certainly masters tried to prevent uh, slaves from, uh, from fleeing. So their service came at the end of these, these very difficult uh, journeys. In two cases here, we have a story that's really sort of singular and fascinating. Two of the men, Albemarle-born men, in the ranks at Appomattox, George Washington, Lewis, and John Allen, enlisted in Pennsylvania. They had been freed by their master in his will. Their master was a man named Charles Everett, who owned a plantation here in the county. Everett was James Monroe's private secretary and doctor. And he had decided that in, in his will, he'd stipulated that when he died, his slaves should be freed and 
sent away, colonized in Africa. For complicated reasons, his nephew and executor decided instead to settle them in Mercer County, Pennsylvania, some 500 miles from here, the, uh, uh, the slaves freed by this will. Needless to say, it was an exceedingly unusual move for a master to free his slaves in this way in 1848 when this happened. So it's, a, again, a very unusual story. But nonetheless, uh, again, talk about fascinating journeys. These uh, men, John Allen and, and uh, George Washington Lewis, moved to Pennsylvania as part of this manumission before the war, signed up for the Union Army in Pennsylvania, and were in the ranks when the war closed uh, at Appomattox. Uh, again, 70 different regiments uh, represented among these Albemarle, Albemarle men. So many different kinds of journeys represented here as we think about these USCT troops. But regardless of the nature of those journeys, the presence of these men in the ranks was always the culmination of a, of a long struggle. We know, those of you who have seen the movie Glory will know this, that African Americans had volunteered to serve in the Federal Army in the very early days of the war and been turned away on the grounds that they didn't allegedly have the patriotism or courage necessary to fight, turned away by the North and by the Union. They had to keep lobbying for the chance to join the Army. They did. They kept faith that the war was their golden moment, and when they finally got the chance to fight, they proved their mettle at dozens of engagements. Uh, the, some of the USCT regiments at Appomattox had seen a lot of action. One of them, a Pennsylvania regiment, had been part of the grinding warfare of the Overland Campaign in Virginia, had manned the trenches through the siege of Petersburg and entered that city when it fell on April 2nd. Now, these soldiers were keenly aware that even after giving all this proof of their courage, their march toward equality could still be turned back so long as powerful Confederate armies were in the field. The Confederate government viewed all black soldiers as rebellious slaves liable to be enslaved or executed if captured. The soldiers were also aware, again, that racism then ran very deep in the North and that many white Northerners viewed their enlistment as a kind of social experiment, testing whether blacks had the capacity for citizenship, and that many of those white Northerners hoped and expected that the experiment would fail. The stakes are very, very high uh, for these men, and they know it. So not surprisingly, given this context, black soldiers quickly seized on the USCT's critical role in Lee's surrender as a vindication of their own. As William McCausland of the 29th Regiment USCT put it in a May 1865 letter, quote, we the colored soldiers have fairly won our rights by loyalty and bravery. Many of these men's white officers and comrades in arms shared the conviction that the USCT's role in this final fighting in Appomattox had been decisive. I'll read you a letter written by an officer in Sheridan's cavalry to his mother and sisters, white officer in Sheridan's cavalry. He wrote, uh, describing the events on April 9th, the morning of the 9th came, the cavalry was being pushed back rapidly towards the station, the boys were falling, scores of them. Why was it with victory so near? When over the hill a dark column was espied, coming down the road in close column at quick time. What a relief from the awful suspense. What cared we for the color or race of those men, so long as they brought relief to us? We saw courage and determination in their coal black faces. Now, African-American troops understood themselves to be an army of liberation, whose defeat of Lee was a nail in the coffin of slavery itself. And again, here's something that I found that surprised me a, a great deal. There's abundant evidence that 
slaves in the army, uh, or former slaves in the army and those who were still enslaved, civilians, saw Appomattox as a freedom day. And that for many of them, April 9, 1865, not January 1st, 1863, January 1st, 1863, the date of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. For many slaves, it was April 9 and not January 1st, that is the Freedom Day. Why? Lee's surrender, the demise of the Confederacy, brought de facto freedom. As long as Confederates controlled the South, there was no real freedom to be grasped. It was the demise of the Confederacy that brought freedom made freedom materialize. And if we look at the historical record, we see Virginia slaves, the ones who are the first to hear the tidings of the surrender, are also the first to sort of fathom the significance of this event, none other than Booker T. Washington in his classic autobiography, Up From Slavery, remembered how when the war closed, the day of freedom came, as he put it, to southwestern Virginia where he lived, a United States officer came and belatedly read the Emancipation Proclamation to the people in his community in April of 1865, uh, announcing to them um, that their, again, their long-awaited moment of deliverance had come. Now, if we fast forward, again, there are many sort of fasc fascinating sources here that permit us to recover this history. One of those sources is interviews conducted in the 20th century in the 1930s by a New Deal uh, operation called the Works Progress Administration, hence these are sometimes called the WPA interviews. Interviews conducted with African Americans who had been slaves in Virginia before the war. So they're very elderly at this point, reflecting back on their lives before the war. And they echo Washington's words. For example, one of those interviewed in a WPA interview, a woman named Fanny Berry, remembered that slaves in Pamplin, Virginia, burst into spontaneous song when they learned that Lee had surrendered, for at that moment, she said, they knew they were free. For some slaves, former slaves interviewed in the 1930s, the date of Lee's surrender structured their very sense of time and of history. Eliza Washington told her WPA interviewer, quote, the first thing I remember was living with my mother about six miles from Scott's Crossing in Arkansas about the year 1866. I know it was 1866 because it was the year after the surrender, and we all knew the surrender was in 1865. That was literally the moment that brought history into focus for her, structured her memory. Appomattox was uh, at the surrender moment, April 9, 1865, began to uh, be celebrated by freed people on a yearly basis. As early as 1866, we see uh, evidence of African Americans holding April 9 celebrations, celebrating it as a freedom day. These will persist into the 20th century. I found evidence in Philadelphia churches and Chicago churches of African Americans celebrating April 9 as Emancipation Day. Now, African American soldiers' pivotal role as agents of liberation would long remain a point of pride within black communities. This historian who I mentioned, George Washington Williams, himself a veteran of the Appomattox campaign, would note in his landmark History of the Negro Race in America, published in 1883, that at Appomattox, in the last hour of the slaveholders' rebellion, the brilliant fighting of black troops had ensured the salvation of the Union. He took great pride in this. And the fact that black soldiers had defeated, helped to defeat Lee, lent additional symbolic meaning to the surrender. Lee and his army typified, in the eyes of the USCT, the haughty slaveholding elite and its pretense of racial superiority. 
According to Thomas Morris Chester, a black newspaper correspondent who was embedded with the Union Army of the James and sent dispatches back home to Philadelphia, the Confederate capitulation was especially sweet because it was a rebuke to the FFVs, or First Families of Virginia, whom Chester wryly dubbed after the surrender, fleet-footed Virginians. In short, men such as George Washington Williams and Thomas Morse Chester made and then sustained the bold claim that in defeating Lee's army, African-American troops had dealt a death blow to all that army stood for, including slavery itself. And most important in their interpretations of the surrender was an attempt to inscribe a civil rights message into the surrender. What do I mean by that? Emphasizing the promise of Appomattox as a moment of healing Black veterans depicted the freed people, and black soldiers in particular, as agents of national healing. So George Washington Williams, in his 1888 History of the Negro Troops in the War of the Rebellion, praised black soldiers for treating the vanquished Confederates with, quote, quiet dignity and Christian humility. He wrote, quote, after the Confederate army had been paroled, the Negro troops cheerfully and cordially divided their rations with the late enemy and welcomed them at their campfires on the march back to Petersburg. The sweet gospel of forgiveness was expressed in the Negro soldiers' interaction with the ex-rebel soldiers who freely mingled with the black conquerors. It was a spectacle of magnanimity never before witnessed. Now, this was a somewhat rosier view of, of uh, things than uh, actually pertain. There were a lot of, uh, obviously, mutual tension and distrust. But Williams is making a very important point here he is trying to counter what had been the preeminent argument against emancipation and abolition since Jefferson's day. And that was the argument that anti-abolitionists in both North and South trafficked in endlessly, that you could not have emancipation, you couldn't have black freedom because you would have retribution and vengeance by former slaves against their masters, race, war. Abolitionists had for years, decades said no, that's not what's going to happen. The slavery is the problem. Abolition isn't the problem. If you have abolition, you'll have your one chance at peace. You'll remove the source of all of this uh, tension and resentment. Slavery. Slavery, the root cause. If you have uh, emancipation, you'll have peace. This had been the promise of abolitionists. Here, Williams, in his account of Appomattox, is invoking that promise. He's trying to counter this charge that emancipation would bring social chaos. He's putting African-Americans inside the victor circle among those dispensing magnanimity and leniency and forgiveness. And in Williams' view, black magnanimity at Appomattox was a conscious effort, as purposeful as Grant's own clemency to Lee, to break a cycle of violence that slaveholders and slavery had long perpetuated. Could that cycle be broken? I'll close now with a few thoughts on that question. African-Americans who invoked Appomattox as a signifier of hope were fighting a rearguard action against a determined foe. In the decade after the war, defeated Southerners began to elaborate the lost cause tradition, a mythology that romanticized the Old South and the Confederacy, that demonized Republican Reconstruction as a corrupt and punitive regime, and that attempted to justify vigilante violence by groups like the Klan as a legitimate means to restore the old order. Needless to say, 
For champions of the lost cause narrative, there were no black heroes in the Appomattox story. There was no liberation from tyranny. There was no promise of interracial reconciliation. As I suggested earlier, unreconstructed rebels interpreted that key line in Grant's surrender terms, the stipulation that paroled Confederates would remain undisturbed by U.S. authorities, as a promise that although slavery was defunct, the racial caste system would remain undisturbed. And no one did more to press that argument than John Brown Gordon, a former general in Lee's army. In 1871, Gordon, who was a leader of George's Ku Klux Klan and future senator and governor, was summoned to testify before a joint committee on Congress that was investigating conditions in the South. And in his testimony, Gordon repeatedly invoked the Appomattox terms. He said, quote, we should not be disturbed so long as we obeyed the laws. This was the pledge that uh, Grant had made to the Confederates. Gordon continued to say that peace would have come swiftly and surely if radical Republicans had not betrayed the spirit of Appomattox by telling Confederates, and here I quote Gordon, quote, your former slaves are better fitted to administer the laws than you are. Here he is uh, uh, trafficking in a sort of caricature of Republican Reconstruction. Gordon's message was clear. The only way to restore peace in his mind was to leave the white South alone to manage its own affairs. Here again, too, at this moment in Reconstruction, we have a theme of divisions within each society. Northerners opposed to racial equality joined with men like Gordon in arguing that congressional reconstruction and attempt to bring interracial democracy to the South was a betrayal of the Appomattox terms. In short, for African Americans, no less than for whites, Appomattox came to represent a lost promise, a betrayal of the promise of freedom, a betrayal both by those whites who rejected black citizenship and by those who gave up the fight for it. However, compelling and comforting the image of the surrender as a gentleman's agreement may be, it doesn't begin to capture this complex legacy of Appomattox. Deep into the 19th century, Appomattox was at the, as, at the heart of the politics of race and reunion. Thank you. We've got time for a couple questions. If you give me your hand, I'll run my Happy to, to answer you. questions if folks have them. I was just curious about your characterization of the negotiation kind of between the two generals, but was there no um, pre-existing strategy on the part of the Lincoln administration or the Secretary of War there to what to do with the Southern uh, soldiers, for It's example? a great question. So um, Grant, the question is about uh, uh, the nature of the negotiations. Was there a pre-existing strategy? And the answer is that Grant was acting on Lincoln's orders. He knew what Lincoln wanted. Grant had met with Lincoln, and they talked about what Lincoln wanted. Lincoln was in favor of a hard war and a soft peace, and as early as December of 1863, he'd offered amnesty to con any Confederate who would accept emancipation and take an oath of allegiance, of, of sort of present and future allegiance to the Union. Uh, and so Grant uh, hoped and expected that the men in the civil realm who would work out these questions of, of uh, the sort of rights and responsibilities of Confederates would do it in keeping with the spirit of Lincoln's magnanimity. R Lincoln had said famously in his second inaugural address, malice towards non-charity towards all. So Grant has marching orders. 
He also knows that Lincoln has said to him, you're, you're not to deal with the political issues. Again, your brief as a commander is to get Lee's army under control. And so Grant's terms were meant uh, 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 to do that. And again, he hoped that everything that happened after that would be in the spirit of Lincoln's magnanimity. Lee is in a different position. He's sort of improvising, all right? The Confederate government's on the lam at this point. Jefferson Davis and his cabinet fled Richmond uh, in advance of the Union Army's arrival there. They are uh, on their way to Danville and eventually into North Carolina. J Davis will be caught, but not until May. So co communications between Lee and Davis are sporadic. And Lee knows that Davis doesn't want him to surrender. Davis is a last-ditch guy. Uh, he didn't, you know, Lee, uh, Lee is, is, is uh, very well aware that he'll have some explaining to do to Davis about why he felt it was necessary to uh, throw in the towel. Uh, and and it's, it was an interesting challenge as I wrote the book. I, I had, um, I'm a historian of Virginia, so I was, I was very familiar with Lee, but I didn't know Grant much, and it was interesting to get to know Grant. And the, it's the nature of the sources that there's not a symmetry there. Grant writes a magnificent memoir, which he's, he publishes in 1885. It's written while he's dying of throat cancer, a gruesome, painful death. He etches out this memoir. It is one of the great memoirs in the English language. And he tells us exactly what was going through his mind on April 9th. Lee dies in 1870, long before Grant, only five years after the end of the war, and doesn't leave a memoir. So in order to recreate what Lee was thinking, I had to learn as much as I could from things that people around him said and, and, and so on, and, and offer an interpretation based on the, the material I had. But there is an asymmetry there. We have a clear sense. Grant both had clear marching orders and left us a clear record of what he was thinking then, then Lee. Great question. We've got one back here. Could you comment on the fact that Appomattox was not the final surrender and what effect Sherman's later, Congress's later rejection of Sherman's first surrender document had? had on what you've been talking about. Absolutely. So Appomattox is not the last surrender of a Confederate army. Joe Johnston's army will surrender to, uh, to Sherman at Durham Station, and, and uh, Kirby Smith will surrender in the, to Trans-Mississippi, uh, and there's a, a few other armies that have to surrender. However, um, and, and the Sherman terms are really interesting. Sherman exemplifies this kind of hard war but soft peace mentality. He will extend to Johnston's army terms that are even more lenient than Grant's so lenient that Sherman is cast, uh, um, uh, uh, castigated by Johnson and by Grant for having gone outside the blueprint that Lincoln and Grant had created, and, and, and essentially Grant's terms are superimposed uh, over, uh, over Sherman's. A number of Civil War scholars have said recently, you know, well, does the war really end at Appomattox? There are these other surrenders, which you note very importantly. There's certainly, it's not the end of violence. There's all kinds of... Uh, uh, violence uh, during the Reconstruction era. I uh, believe that Lee's surrender is the effective end of the war because, as my colleague Gary Gallagher has, has, has uh, explained in his, his excellent uh, book, The Confederate War, Robert E. Lee at this point is the heart of the Confederacy. He is the most, his Army of Northern Virginia is the most important Confederate institution. Uh, the hopes of the Confederate people are riding on Lee's shoulders, and once his army is uh, under control, Confederate independence is dead. There, there, yes, there's some work that has to be done to round up the last soldiers, but Confederate independence is a dead letter after Lee is, uh, is done for. And I have to say, parenthetically, that I, I 
you know, there are huge debates among Civil War historians about the role of demoralization in the Confederate Army and whether demoralization brings the Confederates down. And um, reading the letters and diary entries and so on of these Confederate men in the final days of the wars, they're literally dropping dead from starvation. I was struck by how much faith they had in Lee even till the end, how they believed that he could work one more miracle somehow. So even these Confederate men, when they see the the, the white flags of, you know, truce and surrender go up at Appomattox Courthouse are surprised. Uh, that's, um, that's how important an institution the Army of Northern Virginia was. Uh, yes, just a question. Can you compare and contrast those three views on the surrender with the views today on the Civil War uh, monuments in the South? <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it's a great question. And, I mean, I think you have to... If you, one, one can observe a few things. Um, one of them, as I said, I, I, um, I was very eager in this project, in a sense, to put myself in those post-war moments, trying to forget that I knew all the things that were going to happen later happen later. In other words, by 18, the 1890s, roughly, Lee has an image, a national image, as being a peacemaker, and he's considered a national hero because this lost cause mythology is proven to be very appealing to a lot of white northerners for all kinds of complicated reasons. Um, but I was curious about what people in, 18, in you know, May of 1865 or July of 1865 and so on thought, and not projecting what we know in the present back into the past. So in a sense, you know, the place to begin answering that question is to say um, we have to be careful about, about uh, not drawing a direct line between the present and the mid-19th century because all sorts of things happened and, and intervened that, that, that can make that distorting. I'm a 19th century historian in part because I believe that the, one of the fascinating things about the 19th century is that it seems very familiar. Certainly if you read the language, it's less foreign to us than the language of the Puritans, for example. But it was a different time and place. And the political spectrum was different than it is now. There's just no, there's just no, uh, uh, all of the things, liberal, progressive, conservative, Republican, Democrat, meant different things. So we have to be uh, very careful about remembering that. Um, at the same time, one, uh, I think it's, it's uh, uh, perfectly obvious that elements of this kind of lost cause mythology survive in the present day. Um, and uh, that's been a mythology that it's been difficult to dispel. There's all kinds of complicated um, uh, all kinds of complicated reasons um, for for that, and I think that uh, if you think about debates over the statues, um, one has to uh, uh, sort of be careful to recognize that there's a complex spectrum of opinion. There's some some uh, you know uh, obviously um, ill-informed. Uh, uh, positions people take, but there are also, just to take, to give you an example, perhaps the best way to, to do this is, is this way. Among historians that I know, there's a, a, there are debates about the statues. And among historians, the debate is really between, on the one hand, people who say, uh, you always want more history, not less. These statues, even if they represent parts of the past that are troubling or even ugly and shameful, represent teachable moments. And so you use them to teach, so that you say to yourself, uh, um, we have to be, the statues can remind us to be vigilant 
about preserving uh, the important changes that our society has seen and not, not, um, not going backwards. Uh, and so historians who make those, those sort of arguments about teachable moments will generally say about the statues, um, curate, provide more context so that a person going to the statue can learn about when it was put up exactly and why and for what purpose, uh, and balance. So find ways to put on the landscape markers that will tell stories that that statue doesn't tell, and in the case of the Lee statue, for example. So that's... Uh, uh, one approach. Um, there, there are others who, uh, 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 and I, I would say, I would say, I personally, I, I used to be in that camp. But on the question of this Lee statue in Charlottesville, I think I've moved into the camp of people who say it's time to take it down. Um, that there's lots of places we can go to learn history: our classrooms, our books, our museums, our cemeteries, our um, libraries, and so on. But that in a public park that's meant to reflect modern-day Charlottesville. Um, having a statue of someone who never set foot here, who's been dead 150 years and who represents a discredited ideology is not sending the message that, uh, that we want to send about modern day. I'm a native Virginian, so I think about this stuff hard. Um, uh, obviously, I'm a historian of Virginia. I think nothing is more fascinating or important than preserving Virginia history. But I think, I think so the other school of thought is, is the place I've ended up, which is to say communities need to make these decisions on their own. There's no one-size-fits-all decision. They need to make them on their own in, in, in deliberative processes that are careful and respectful. I feel that my town, Charlottesville, had such a process, and I respect the decision that the city council came to as a result of that process. But, but again, the, the way of answering this is to say even among historians there is, there is uh, debate and I respect the teachable moment argument, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, but, um, but personally I've, I've, uh, I've had a little bit of a journey on this question in the local setting. Thank you. Um, I too grew up in Virginia, learned probably took Virginia history three, four, five times during my uh, younger years. And I was, take, I was surprised by your, your comment that it was that Reconstruction was a myth, at least it was taught as in a mytho mythological value um, during that time. What is your take on uh, the reality of Reconstruction, and do you think it would have been different had Lincoln not been assassinated? Great question. Fabulous question. So Reconstruction, the it's really the most confusing part of American history. And it's confusing for a lot of reasons, one of which is that it was different in every southern state, had a different endpoint and, and, and uh, different conditions and dynamics. Um, the key thing to understanding Reconstruction is to understand that it has distinct phases. The first phase, so-called presidential reconstruction, is a phase in which Andrew Johnson is at the helm. And again, for a lot of complicated reasons, he chooses to be very lenient to the former Southern elite about which he had talked tough during his political career. And this permits former Confederates essentially to come back into power in the first two years after Reconstruction and to put in place in Southern states a social system, legal system, as close to slavery as they could possibly make it without it being slavery. So the Republican Party, which was Lincoln's party, the party that won the war, looks at this, sees their former foes coming back into power, and thinks to itself, well, now 700,000 men died in this war just so that they could come back into power. That doesn't seem right or fair. The Republican Party wants, believes it should be at the helm of this process of bringing the southern states back into the Union. 
So the Republican Party in uh, Congress in 1867 passes a series of Reconstruction Acts to begin the experiment over with one important change. Now African-American men in the South will vote. And this is a remarkable thing in American history, which we should all be proud of, a, an amazing transformation. Suddenly, um, uh, 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 hundreds of thousands of men welcomed into the ranks of voters. And so for about a 10-year period, it differs in different places. Um, a Republican coalition that consists of white Southerners who decided to support the Republican Party. I'll give you some interesting examples in just a second. African-American voters and some transplanted white Northerners, although not as many as the myth would have us believe. They have an experiment in interracial democracy in the South for about 10 years during what we call congressional Reconstruction. And that experiment in interracial democracy achieves things like public education. There hadn't really been public education in the South before the war, but during Reconstruction, Congressional Reconstruction, we have public education. Among those white Southerners who decide to support the Republican Party are some sort of unlikely characters. And this is important for understanding what I just said about Appomattox. Uh, General James Longstreet, Lee's War Horse's right hand man decides to support the Republican Party. And James Longstreet will go into battle against, essentially, Klansmen leading black troops uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, New Orleans. Longstreet's view, and this was what Grant was hoping more Confederates would conclude. Longstreet's view was, you won the war. The war arbitrated our dispute. Now we Southerners have to live in the, the world that this reality has uh, uh, created. So Longstreet becomes a Republican. James Mosby, uh, um, uh, John Singleton Mosby, rather. John Singleton Mosby, uh, uh, the gray ghost of the Confederacy, you know, rode a, a rough shot in the woods in northern Virginia where I grew up, a famous uh, guerrilla, uh, partisan ranger. He will support the Republican Party and support Grant um, uh, during, uh, during Reconstruction. So we have a coalition, interracial democracy in the South for the first time. And white Southerners are always the dominant part of that coalition. But as, even before this experiment gets off the ground, those who don't want to see change uh, begin to wage war on it. The Klan is founded in 1866, while Johnson is still in office before blacks can even vote. It's formed to be preemptive, to preempt change. And waves and waves of vigilante violence and fraud and lies will undermine this experiment in inter interracial democracy uh, and bring what um, the, the unreconstructed like to call redemption, which is having the Union Army removed from the South, black voting disappear until the 1950s and, uh, uh, and, a, and a sort of turning back of the clock. Now, your fantastic question about Lincoln, would it have been different if Lincoln had lived? That's a really tough one. Um, we, we, what did Lincoln want? Well, as I explained in relation to the earlier question, Lincoln wanted a soft peace. Lincoln told to certain of his cabinet members after the surrender um, that it would suit him perfectly well if Jeff Davis and the other Confederate leaders would quietly slip into Latin America and never be heard from again. So he wouldn't have to make martyrs of them by punishing them. Wouldn't have to make martyrs of them. Um, Lincoln, in his very last speech, the first time an American president ever does this, again, the greatness of Lincoln, we can never sort of get to the bottom of this story. Lincoln, in his very last speech, um, uh, uh, endorses the possibility of giving the vote to African-American men. And there's a man standing in the 
audience at that speech named John Wilkes Booth, who says to himself, that's the last speech Lincoln will ever make, because he doesn't like the sound of that. So Lincoln, I think, would have certainly done a, be a better job than Andrew Johnson. That's not saying much. Lincoln would have, Lincoln had these amazing powers as a communicator. And um, would have been able to explain to the American people why and how things needed to change. Lincoln wouldn't have put up with the kind of recalcitrance uh, that uh, Johnson ended up facilitating. But Lincoln would have had a hard time. And he would have had a hard time because he would have found that a basic premise of the Union war effort, I'm writing a book about this now, a basic premise of Republican Party politics, that the mass of white Southerners resented the slaveholder elite and would throw off their yoke the first chance they got, was wrong. Lincoln believed that deeply. Lincoln, Kentucky-born, sort of border state uh, guy himself, believed deeply that this white Southerners could be delivered. Most white Southerners didn't own slaves. They could be delivered from the clutches of the slaveholding aristocracy. And he would have found, like Johnson did, that uh, white Southerners, uh, Confederates, were not in any mood to repudiate their leaders. Quite the contrary. So Lincoln would have, uh, I, he would have done a better job, but he would have had a hard time. No, no question. A great question. Any other questions? We've got one last question, about two minutes left. Um, it seems to me that one way to interpret the terms at Appomattox was that, that Grant was extending perhaps a military courtesy and in, in some of this leniency to, to fellow soldiers, mm -hmm. as is commonly done. Mm -hmm. But this was interpreted as a validation by the Southerners uh, of their culture. Yes. Was this a, a missed opportunity to, to, to not make, to, you know, the army was crushed, but not to crush that malignant part of the culture? Was this a missed opportunity, or do you think that this moved the needle as much as a society will tolerate? In yeah, words, that's a great question. The societies have to evolve more. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, should Grant and, and uh, others have been... Um, sterner in their punishments. I mean, you, you think about the, the, the scope of death in the Civil War. Uh, you know, l let's put it this way. Lee didn't know what was going to happen when he surrendered. If you look at civil wars in human history, heads usually roll after civil wars. So, so you know, Lee had no idea what to expect. Heads didn't roll after this Civil War. There's an execution of a few guerrillas of the Commandant at Andersonville of the Lincoln assassination, assassination conspirators, but that's it. Quite the contrary. Again, magnanimity is the keynote. Should they have done otherwise? I think that, you know, it, it just wasn't in the cards. Again, my colleague Gary Gallagher has written eloquently on this subject, too. Northerners fought the war for the Union. That, that's what they fought it for. Most Northerners were not abolitionists. Only one in ten Northern soldiers is an abolitionist on the eve of the war. Those men from Vermont, New Hampshire, whatever, go into the Army to fight for the Union. The Union to them represents representative government, democracy, a singular experiment in world history, the only thriving republic left on the globe, the hope of mankind, the last best hope, as Lincoln would say famously. In, in, and, and for them, secession was a, 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 an abrogation of what the founders had wanted and intended. It was Southerners rejecting majority rule. Republicans felt we won the election fair and square. That's all there is to it. So because they were fighting for union, um, they always from the start defined victory as a process of bringing the errant brethren back into the fold. And, and, and again, I'm writing about this now, so it's something that's on my mind. The degree to which Northerners saw Southerners as sort of 
children who needed to be schooled, patients who needed to be cured, sinners who needed to repent, prodigal sons who needed to come back, errant brethren that needed to find the path of righteousness. This kind of language was ubiquitous. Now, it grated on the ears of Confederates. It seemed condescending to them, right? But, but there's just something fundamental there about union having been the purpose. And so um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a... Uh, People, let me say one more thing about this just because it's it's a fascinating question. People have talked about the what-ifs with regard to punishments, but also the what-ifs with regards to rewards. There were some radical Republicans who said, again, look, 700,000 men have died because these people started this war. Why don't we break up the estates of the old planters and give them to, hey, Union soldiers, you know, people who helped save the Union? The idea of confiscating land, breaking up estates didn't go anywhere in the North, and it didn't go anywhere because there were guys who had estates in New York and Pennsylvania, too, who didn't particularly like the precedent that that that, that would set. So, you know, again, a change that we can look back and say, well, maybe, maybe that would have been the right thing to do, but it really wasn't in the cards because, as you yourself put it, these are cultural structures that are, that are very, very hard to change. Great question. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you. On behalf of alumni.